This is the Monday, October 17th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to 1965, where we'll meet Jonathan Daniels, a white seminary student who answered Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s call to help with voter registration in Selma, Alabama. Jonathan is probably not like anyone you've ever met before, even through a book, but he was a real flesh-and-blood human being. And after the voting rights marches, Daniels remained to assist civil rights workers and gave his life, saving black teenager Ruby Sales from a shotgun blast. Rich Wallace and Sandra Neal Wallace, like Jonathan Daniels, live in New Hampshire, where they discovered this local hero's sacrifice through his letters, papers, taped interviews, and stunning photographs, as well as many of his personal doodles. Many of these sources have never been shared before with the public. The result is the book, Blood Brother. Jonathan Daniels and His Sacrifice for Civil Rights. You've seen Sandra Neal Wallace's work as a news anchor and ESPN sportscaster. Of particular interest to me as a hockey fan, Sandra was the first woman to host an NHL show on network television. Her husband, Rich Wallace, has written over three dozen novels for children and teens, and he co-wrote titles with Sandra, such as Babe Conquers the World. The Young Adult Library Services Association named his novel Wrestling Sturbridge one of the 100 best of the best for the 21st century. You can visit our guests at SandraNeilWallace.com and RichWallaceBooks.com. That last name is W-A-L-L-A-C-E, and Sandra Neil Wallace is N-E-I-L. And while you're online, catch the YouTube trailer for Blood Brother, navigate to their Facebook pages, and follow them on Twitter at Sandra N. Wallace and R. Wallace Books. Okay, now that we know a little bit about today's authors, let's join them and meet Blood Brother, Jonathan Daniels. I'm joined on the line by husband and wife writing team Rich Wallace and Sandra Neil Wallace, they're the co-authors of Blood Brother, Jonathan Daniels and His Sacrifice for Civil Rights. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Oh, it's our pleasure, Dean. Thanks. We're glad to be here. Rich, you hail from New Jersey, near where I grew up. And Sandra, you were born and raised in Ontario, Canada. My wife's from Canada, by the way. So here you find yourselves in New Hampshire. So I have some idea of the difference here. It's a few years ago you start hearing about this man, Jonathan Daniels. 
describe the progression from this just being maybe a little known local story that you shared as husband and wife talking about, hey, I heard about this guy, through to one where you kind of put on your hats as journalists and then ultimately put on that ultimate hat of authors. Yeah, well, we moved to Keene, New Hampshire about seven years ago after our kids were launched. And yeah, we started hearing that name, Jonathan Daniels, around town. There's a school named after him. And we, you know, very quickly learned that Jonathan was someone who had traveled south in 1965 after Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama. He was a seminary student to join the voting rights marches at Martin Luther King Jr.'s call. And we also knew that he had died, you know, a few months later, stepping in front of a, a teenage colleague who was also doing the same type of work. So we knew how he died. We didn't know how he lived. Indeed, it was interesting. We also discovered that Jonathan was an amateur photographer, and we were able to have photos developed from his camera after he was killed. The camera was actually in his getaway car. And uh, we knew that we had to locate the uh, protesters in those photos. They were unidentified. And that's really when the investigative journalism kicked in, and we ourselves ended up going south many times, contacting alumni from schools, from Brown Chapel, which was the official or unofficial, if you will, headquarters of the civil rights movement in 1965. And we were able to locate 12 of the Black American protesters who were teenagers at the time who protested with Jonathan. They'd never been interviewed about Jonathan before, and we were really huh. able to get a stronger timeline of his life. And 50 years ago. So imagine those stories, those first person accounts being lost. It's something that scares me as somebody who loves history to get these things down and get them into Blood Brother to have this book that not only has the pictures you were talking about. I mentioned when we started that it delayed me even starting the book. I opened it and I just lingered over that first picture. And that's something that it's lost if you don't come upon his name. So it's not enough just to have a local story. Sometimes it really does need a bigger audience. And it seems like it really called to you both, for you both to agree this is a story you wanted to tell. Yeah, it's, it's far more than just a local story. This is, this is really a national hero of the civil rights era. And it surprised us that very few people knew Jonathan's story. It kind of got eclipsed by other events that occurred in the summer of 1965. Yeah, it was interesting when Jonathan died exactly two weeks after the passing of the Voting Rights Act. And uh, while he was in jail, and we can talk about that a little later on in the show, Watts erupted. So the focus essentially was immediately off Selma, Alabama. People had fought in America and the most part that now that black Americans could vote, everything was okay. And of course it wasn't. And then their focus shifted to uh, Los Angeles. It seems as if he also didn't fit an easy narrative to write a story about. At the time, you wouldn't have had all this background that you were able to put together. He's unique and also a story that made a lot of people uncomfortable, a lot of white Americans uncomfortable. And he's not welcomed with open arms either by the African-Americans that are there. They're distrusting of him. And then he has the clerical collar, which is another strike against him. The thing with somebody like this is when they're murdered, you don't want to let that gun flash, in this case a shotgun blast, define the life that came before it. I think that would be easy to do. There's a school named after this man. He was shot in the civil rights movement, and you would kind of move on. We're all busy. The, the historical plaque can only show so much. But you paint this full picture of him, and Jonathan Daniels is somebody that I would like to meet, and I would encourage anybody to read Blood Brother to meet him. 
you don't start with the martyr, so let's not do it today. Mm-hmm. Tell us it's the 1960s in New England. You're taking us maybe to a drive-in theater to meet this friend of yours, Jonathan Daniels. You've lived in his head now for a while. So how would you describe him to somebody who's meeting him for the first time when he's a teenager? Well, Dean Jonathan was a brilliant and intense scholar, you know, even as a teenager and then heading into VMI. But he was also witty and funny. So he was the type of guy who was willing to risk his life for his beliefs and in a protest line. But, you know, while he would be in that protest line and while he would be telling you about refusing to serve in Vietnam, he'd also be cracking jokes the next second and talking about how beautiful the sunrise was that he saw earlier that day. That's the type of person that Jonathan was. And, you know, we, we mentioned the teenagers now who are now in their late 60s, early 70s in Selma. We interviewed lots of people in Keene as well who went to kindergarten with Jonathan, went to middle school with Jonathan, went to high school with Jonathan, who are still around today, and heard incredible stories about this kid who was not, you know, a straight arrow. He was in trouble a lot of the time. He was not the best student either. And, you know, the great stories that I loved hearing about from his best friend in middle school. Jonathan at night would go out and he'd, he'd make his way into old schools or churches and he would climb up into the clock towers and the steeples and just sit up there smoking a cigarette, looking down over the city and really pondering, figuring out who he was. He was very introspective. He really stuck in people's minds for 50 years. Think about that. I don't know how much people remember from kindergarten or middle school or even high school. Sometimes you look back and it's sort of a blur. You realize that this face of a bully or even the face of a good friend has just been obscured, the name and the information on him. And all you remember maybe is the face. And then eventually that fades. He was really vivid that he stuck in people's mind for so long. Despite the fact it wasn't just that he was tragically died so young, but he really seems to have touched so many people. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about the work that he does when he's working in medicine. His father's a well-known doctor. He goes into it sort of from the counseling angle. And there's a girl you mentioned in the book that has epilepsy. She's having seizures. And so much of his life, everything, he's always that introspection trying to make himself a better human being. So tell us our story a little bit. He would probably have described that as one of the most difficult projects he ever did. As a seminary student, they did field work, and part of his outreach was in Providence. He would go there every weekend and work in a poor urban area. But the incident that you're talking about was in the summer, oh, probably 63 or so, a little later than that, where he went to an institute in upstate New York where people were hospitalized with pretty severe mental illness. And as a seminarian, part of his role was just going talk to these people about their lives. And that was one that that young woman that you mentioned who was apparently faking seizures pretty regularly, which is not an easy thing to do. In speaking to Jonathan, she overcame a lot of her fears. She found better alternatives in, in dealing with the world. And Jonathan got a lot of credit for helping bring her out of that. He learns to just listen there, too. You said he was a big talker, sort of. And then he realizes, I think the way you write about it in Blood Brother is that his usual tools, his usual tricks, not that he was trying to trick anyone, but the ways that he dealt with people, he learns that those aren't going to apply here to people who have severe mental problems and that are not going to fall for the joke or the funny line. And so he develops this talent of listening, and yet he's still willing to stand up for himself. I alluded to it a minute ago. He gets there and A lot of these people that are in the African-American community that he wants to sign up to vote, they're not all saying, oh, hey, sure, come on. They're suspicious of him and with good reason. 
Yeah. I mean, he was never a manipulator, but he was someone who learned from his his own mistakes, from his own failings, was constantly analyzing himself, how he could do things in a better way and not in a better way that that he would necessarily gain from, but that he could help others with. He really was so good. And, you know, we, we talk about this a lot amongst ourselves that only Jonathan could get away with calling anybody out on their hypocrisies because he was the first one to own up to his insecurities and to stand by his convictions. So he really did live by example and lead by example. And because of that integrity and such honesty and candidness, he really was able to cut through those racial, social, political lines to really get at the humanity in all of us. This is how he won over Stokely Carmichael. Probably the biggest resistance to Jonathan joining the civil rights movement, SNCC in particular in Lowndes County, which was considered the most dangerous county in America at the time, was that he needed to overcome the huge resistance from Stokely Carmichael, who was the supervisor on the ground for SNCC in Lowndes County at the time. And Stokely didn't want Jonathan there at all, in part because Jonathan was white. Well, entirely because Jonathan was white, but for two reasons. One, because he knew that Jonathan would be an immediate target because he would stand out. But also there, there was definitely some racism on uh, on Stokely's part as well. And Jonathan needed to convince him that he was as committed as Stokely was, despite the color of his skin. And he actually said to Stokely's face, listen, you're being a racist. And Stokely soon after permitted him to become the first white civil rights worker to get involved in the voting rights campaign in Lowndes County, Alabama. And Stokely soon said, you know, I have met so many civil rights workers who are white and there's only one that I like very, very much. And that was Jonathan Daniels. Lowndes County. So people get an idea of the setting here. There hasn't been a single African-American vote cast at this time that he gets there in 1965, not one in the 20th century. So imagine the obstacles. Talk about some of the obstacles here that they're facing just to register for this most basic right. And then what Jonathan's up against when he goes there and is trying to help them fill out the forms and get the ballot. Well, 80 percent of the residents of Lowndes County were black, mostly sharecroppers. And as you said, none had ever cast a vote in, in the 20th century. And so they were used to intimidation and they were, had great reservations about doing anything that might cause them to <laughs> find a cross burning on their lawn or worse. And so to get people to register to vote was a matter of they were risking their lives, not just Jonathan and Stokely and Ruby Sales. They weren't the only ones risking their lives trying to get people to register. But the people who were going to register were also taking a risk. And, you know, Jonathan, again, in that case, led by example, you know, here was a white civil rights worker who was a target for segregationists who were part of the White Citizens Council and were night riders. He refused to be intimidated. He wore his seminarian collar during the day, knocking door to door in broad daylight from farm to farm. And the farmers realized that his life was just as much in danger as their lives were and strengthened in numbers. And by the time Jonathan was jailed in the middle of August, the number went from zero to a thousand registered African-American voters. And, and that's also part not only because of the groundwork that SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, did along with Jonathan, but that they were always getting the corruption that was happening with racial segregation for African-Americans in the spotlight, in the news, 
on television. So it was gaining traction nationally and also with the federal government. So by the time Jonathan was fully ensconced in the voting rights campaign in Lowndes, the federal government had threatened Lowndes County that if they didn't start registering African-Americans, that the federal government would come and do it for them. And that's eventually actually what happened after the Voting Rights Act passed. And Rich, you mentioned a name there, Ruby Sales, civil rights worker. She's underage at this point. She's 17 and she lives in fear of being caught. Well, when she's in prison, she's lying about her age because she can get in a lot of trouble. Her parents can be fined and uh, imprisoned, I guess, and she could be sent to reform school because she's considered delinquent for participating in this. There's a million ways here to step out of line in the strictly segregated Jim Crow South in this era. She's alive today because of Jonathan Daniels' sacrifice. He takes a shotgun blast meant for her, literally. She can hardly speak about this at the time. I mean, that's shocking. You're covered in the blood of somebody who's a friend that's just given their life for you. Seven months after, that's just trauma that robs her, really, of the ability to speak. They eventually have a trial. But you met her. She's one of the people you interview. There's a picture of her today in the book, along with many of Jonathan smiling, always seems to be smiling in the pictures. Describe for us Ruby Sales and her recollection of that fateful day in Hainville, Alabama. Well, Ruby has spent every day of her life as a civil rights leader since then. She runs an organization called the Spirit House that's based in Atlanta. And we've spent quite a bit of time with Ruby. The day in question Jonathan and Ruby had participated in a protest of some segregated stores in a little town called Fort Deposit, Alabama. And there were trumped up charges. The demonstration barely got off the ground before they were arrested. 20 young black, mostly teenagers, Jonathan and another white Catholic priest. They were all hauled off to jail in Hainville, about 20 miles away. And jail for six days and nights in really miserable conditions. There was no running water. There were no fans. It was the hottest week of the summer. The toilets were overflowing. So after six days in those conditions, they were then abruptly let out of jail. And it had eerie reminiscences of what had happened with uh, Goodman and Cheney and Schwerner in Mississippi the summer before, where they were let out of jail, not bailed out, but simply let out and then gunned down. So these 22 young people are on the street in Hainville, Alabama. They're forced off jail property. They know something likely is about to happen. Four of them walk toward a corner store where they'd been treated well in the past. As they got there, a deputy sheriff named Tom Coleman, part-time deputy, stepped out and drew his gun and fired at Ruby. Jonathan stepped in there and took the blast and was killed. You think of the moment of going there, knowing all of this time you may get killed. You may lose your life doing this. There's a moment in the book that sort of illustrates this. And again, tons of pictures in there that really do help you get to know Jonathan Daniels, these other civil rights fighters that were fortunate you were able to go and dig up and find again and speak to. It's dangerous work. And this thing that illustrates it for me was that in Blood Brother, Jonathan Daniels ditches his Volkswagen Beetle. And it seems like a simple change. It's not a big deal to get rid of a car today. But when he's trying to register these African-Americans to vote, there's a very real life and death reason for that change. So tell us about that and the dangers he faced just driving around town. 
Yeah, well, it was a huge deal for him because he gets to Selma, Alabama a few days after a Bloody Sunday in March of 1965. He's actually borrowing another seminarian's Volkswagen, who was also with him for part of the time of his stay in Alabama named, named Judy Upperman. It was her father's red Volkswagen, and it quickly became the movement car and vital transportation for Jonathan to help African-American voters get to the courthouse and to attempt to register to vote. And then the danger gets amplified as Jonathan decides to stay in Alabama and continue with voting registration, continuing to wear his seminarian collar and refusing to be intimidated. And when he gets to Lowndes County and he's navigating these back roads where he's being chased by night riders, he realizes that the Volkswagen does not have enough speed to let him continue his life safely. So he convinces Escrew, who hired him essentially to continue working on their behalf, the Episcopal Society for Cultural and Racial Unity, to rent him a faster car. And that's a Plymouth Fury. And he learns how to navigate that, believe it or not, safely at more than 100 miles an hour. And that becomes a vital source of transportation for both him and the workers in Lowndes County. There's one young civil rights worker, a white woman that comes there, much like Jonathan Daniels, and she's killed behind the wheel. You have a picture of her in the book. That's Viola Liuzzo, who came down from the Detroit area. She was there for the march to Montgomery from Selma. The night after that march ended, she was driving civil rights workers back to Selma. She was run off the road and, and killed. He starts, Jonathan Daniels does, in Keene, New Hampshire, as we said, where you are now. I want to retrace how he gets to the deepest of the deep south here. Growing up for me, the image of our Greek Orthodox Archbishop, Yakovos, marching in Selma seemed natural. That's probably one of the earliest memories I have of Dr. King is seeing that Time magazine. If folks want to look it up, it's really a cool picture. I mean, I always joke that our priests are pretty tough guys, you know, and it just seemed the most natural thing. He's looking there very kind of defiantly. And I didn't really think of it until you get a little older and you see he's the only white face that's there. And that stands out. He's marching in Selma, but he has to be called there. The word has to get out. And this is what happens with Jonathan Daniels. He has this same feeling that justice is everyone's business, regardless of color. And so he answers this call to go there. What is he doing at the time? And what role does his faith play in Blood Brother as far as inspiring this devotion to Dr. King's cause? Well, I think it was something that was almost inherent in Jonathan from the very beginning. His family were members of the Congregational Church, and Jonathan felt that was kind of a boring place to be on Sundays. And so in his basement with his friends, he would perform sermons, you know, with vestments and with incense and things like this, very elaborate, more like an Episcopal service. He was always drawn to the ceremony. It was just something that was always within him. He really was a truly devout Christian his entire life. So when King made that call, it was something that clearly he was ready for. Indeed, like Congressman John Lewis, Jonathan was really impressed by how Dr. King equated faith to activism. He'd never heard about that before and how Dr. King saw a straight path from the pulpit to the protest line. So Jonathan had been reading King's books a lot in school. And by the time Jonathan saw Bloody Sunday on TV in March of 1965, when black Americans were being beaten by state troopers simply because they wanted to vote, Jonathan was ready to get involved. And he's 
questioning everything from the faith, from the church. Some people don't like that. And he's a guy asking questions, and you see his love come through in something else in Blood Brother, and that's his doodles. He's always thinking, his mind is going, and what he, where he wants to be. And in fact, they don't even want to take him in that church at first, because they don't want to shame his parents and cause a big upheaval. Talk a little bit about that home life, and maybe how the rigidity there was a tough fit for him in his later life. Well, as you mentioned earlier, his dad was a physician and the type who was out all night doing house calls and things like that and not really being paid very well. His mom was class conscious, you know, and she wanted to look the part of being, you know, the doctor's wife and that sort of thing. Jonathan saw through hypocrisy very, very quickly at a very young age. And I think part of that did come from his home, that he wondered why shouldn't I have friends on the other side of the tracks, so to speak. And he always did. He crossed all of those boundaries, which were more class than anything else in Keene, New Hampshire in the 40s and 50s. There wasn't a lot of racial diversity here, but there were very stark differences in class. And in ethnicity, there was an Italian side of town that Jonathan liked to hang out with his friends. And we have some clips in the, the book where they say that Jonathan didn't care if we had hot dogs or if you know, there weren't full place settings and napkins on the table. He just really wanted to look you in the eye and find out what kind of person you were and have a great conversation. You have a great example of that. You say that he was perfectly comfortable sitting on a ripped up couch. He didn't mind where he was sitting, whereas his mother, clearly that would have been something where, you know, she wanted the right salad fork and the right cover for the couch. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. My guests are Rich Wallace and Sandra Neal Wallace, co-authors of Blood Brother, Jonathan Daniels and his Sacrifice for Civil Rights. You can visit them at SandraNealWallace.com and RichWallaceBooks.com and follow them on Twitter at Sandra N. Wallace and R. Wallace Books. In a starred review for Book List, they write, quote, Outside of his hometown, the name Jonathan Daniels isn't well known, but it should be. They write of Blood Brother, a thoroughly researched, meticulously documented biography, which is interesting from the start, but increasingly absorbing. The many well-chosen photos show up beautifully on the large, glossy pages. The riveting story of one individual among many working for civil rights during the 1960s, unquote. That three-word phrase, well-chosen photos, speaks for what, as I'm going through it, I realize must have been weeks and months of sifting and discarding. Now I know you had to track some of these people down more than I thought. I don't want to ask you about the fight on the air because you are husband and wife, but <laughs> I can imagine picking photos with my own wife and looking through something, what we want to keep, what we want to get rid of. And this is also professional. So were there photographs you disagreed about and how did you resolve those disputes? Well, that's really interesting. Well, first of all, Dean, it took six months of sweat and intense research, plus hundreds of phone calls to gather all the images that we did. What Rich, are there about 130 I think that, of them? At least, yeah. And most of them had never been published before, but surprisingly, we did agree on most of them. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember any harsh discussions about what ought to be in and what not. When it came to choosing photos, not from Jonathan, but from the more iconic civil rights photographers like Bob Adelman and Spider Martin and Danny Lyon, 
then it was a matter of really making harder decisions simply you know because of our budget for one thing but just Could to, we afford those uh, find, the, find the, the images that would really capture the mood of what we wanted and you know one that we were always in real strong agreement was that the photo that bob adelman took that's on the top cover of our book where you have white and black protesters on one side, standing just virtually inches away from a line of police officers on the other, standing just glaring at each other in Selma in 1965 there. That photo looks like it could have been taken literally today in many cities across the country. I also think that the issues really were more the quality of the photos and that there were also so few photos of Jonathan himself because he was behind the camera so much. So we would have loved to have had more photos of Jonathan, but we understand that it was really important for him to chronicle his life as an activist during those five months in Alabama. And speaking of photos of Jonathan, you did what we used to call shoe leather investigating before we had the internet and made it a little bit easier, although maybe not because now we have so much more. But my favorite moment is where you almost heard Jonathan Daniels speak to you as his biographers, and that's when you find a picture of the 1963 March on Washington. Describe that discovery because it's incredible. Well, we were aware of the photo. It had appeared in the Keene Sentinel newspaper here about two and a half years ago and caused a lot of controversy because it shows Jonathan at the March on Washington in, in uh, 1963 where King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And Jonathan is wearing a seminarian collar, and he was just about to enter the seminary, but he was not there yet, and he certainly would not have had permission to do such a thing, and he might have actually been barred from being in the seminary for wearing that collar. So on one side, there were people saying that can't possibly be Jonathan. He would never do anything like that. On the other side, you have his best friend growing up. You have his girlfriend from high school. You have his sister saying, oh, that's Jonathan. We know that it is. So we were pretty convinced it was Jonathan, but we wanted to know for sure. So we went to a forensic expert in one of the largest cities in, in North America who does this for a living every day in, Facial forensics. in, in court yeah. and sent her a couple of dozen photos of, of Jonathan from around that time, plus the photo in question. And her analysis said, you know, unless Jonathan has a twin brother, this is him. Jonathan does not have a twin brother. So we had discovered and proved that this, in fact, was Jonathan. He was at the March on Washington and doing something that actually fits our narrative of him. He he was someone who would take that extra step and put on a seminary collar, even though he probably shouldn't have at that point. And I think the reason that he did that was because he felt that white clergy ought to have a presence at the March on Washington showing support for what's going on there. And he probably was aware that maybe not a lot would show up. And that does not protect him at all when he's in Alabama. Quite the opposite. Isn't that right? Very much so. Makes him a target. Oh, yeah. What was interesting about about Jonathan, a lot of people ask us, was it more dangerous for a white civil rights worker to be entrenched in Alabama in 1964 than a a black civil rights worker? It, it It was just as dangerous regardless of the color of your skin. But I think maybe particularly on Sundays, it was even more dangerous for Jonathan because here he was, this white activist, wearing the seminarian collar Monday through Saturday in front of the protest line, and then going to the Episcopal Church on Sunday, which was segregated, integrating that with his Black friends, and basically going against the way of life and what the segregationists who were sitting a few pews away from him stood for. So he absolutely threatened their way of life seven days a week. 
Rich, you mentioned that the photo on the top cover could have been taken today. And we see a lot still of unrest and people that have not yet lived to see Dr. King's dream fulfilled. Yet there's a line in the book where you say the protesters were singing. And of course, we know what Dr. King's vision of nonviolence was. What do you think that has to say to us today and not just African-Americans? I mean, Jonathan Daniels here, clearly a white man who's inspired to help America live up to its ideals. So what do you think that has to say? How has it changed now that you've spent so much time in your research living in 1965 and then you turn on your TV and you're seeing the 21st century struggles? Well, it certainly still seems that forceful but nonviolent resistance is the way to go. That It seems that that is the way that progress occurs in fits and starts, and yeah, it's, it's certainly been a long time coming, and there are lots of moments today where it seems like no progress has been made, but there has been. In history, Dean shows that when people protest nonviolently in large numbers, multi-race, multi-faith, multi-generational groups, change happens. If you take a look at the March on Washington, the Civil Rights Act, followed. If you take a look at the March to Montgomery, the Voting Rights Act followed. So we hear from leaders every day saying that we need to have, again, that type of movement of blacks and whites working together to create change and having the success that they had in the 60s. And there are many people working toward that today, of course, as we know. You know, with those pictures, it's really interesting. The, some of the photo selections, we really wanted to show what racism looked like on a daily basis. And that was Dr. King watching LBJ's speech to Congress at a friend's home because hotels were segregated. You know, that was Jonathan sleeping in the streets of a protest line or at Brown Chapel because he wasn't accepted in the white community. And that was eight and nine-year-old girls in gingham dresses being arrested and forced to kneel on the sidewalk in front of their houses because they were protesting for their parents' right to vote. So those images of what racism was back then, I think really will be surprising to people when they look at the book. Did it bother anybody that you focused on him because you're illuminating a white civil rights worker over so many African-Americans, or did everybody recognize him as one of their own? Well, I think most people do recognize him as one of their own and, and see beyond the color. We've had tremendous support from the African-American community. You know, the NAACP, President Cornell William Brooks has endorsed the book, who also went to seminary school in the same place as Jonathan and told us that he was very inspired by Jonathan. There are professors throughout the country who are citing Jonathan's life as an example of whites and blacks working together. Ruby Sales, again, somebody that we've been in close contact with, especially in the past few weeks, has endorsed the book very strongly as showing what it really was like and that the example of Jonathan working with her and others is a model for the way that we could still be getting along today. In preparation for this interview, I sent off an article headlined, The Rise of Civil Rights Tourism in America's Deep South. What is the legacy on the ground today of civil rights workers like Jonathan Daniels, like Ruby Sales? Because a lot of times people want to erase those and it's painful. It's not easy to do, but history moves on and people can forget it. But what is this idea that people can go and walk these halls and these grounds and see it? What's there for people to visit and experience it? 
Jonathan is now in the Washington National Cathedral, a likeness of him, uh, right next to Rosa Parks on the human rights porch, um, which is which is very moving. And um, a lot of people can reflect on him and his image there beside Rosa Parks. But I think on the ground, which I'm excited about is in Providence, Rhode Island, where Jonathan started his field work, there's now a Jonathan Daniels house. And every year, uh, four to five students relocate to Providence and they dedicate 12 months of their lives, either counseling as spiritual outreach to homeless families and inmates or tutoring young people deprived of equal opportunity in education. And then in Atlanta, where Ruby Sales is, Dr. Ruby Sales, is the Spirit House. And there is a Jonathan Daniels Fellowship every year. And that student spends up to a year learning the history of the civil rights movement, as well as public policy, so that they're prepared to begin a life of activism and to know the powerful role that nonviolence plays. And even recently, right here in Keene, New Hampshire, as we lead up to the national election, there is a campaign basically says, remember Jonathan Daniels, go out and vote. And that is gaining quite a bit of traction. You mentioned his time at Virginia Military Institute, which seems surprising. Again, it plays against, I think, the stereotype people would like to picture for somebody like this, just because it's easier, not even any any malice. But he does attend there. And as a sign of a little bit of his rebelliousness, he has a glow-in-the-dark crucifix, which I don't even know where you'd buy one of those. But just tell that little story, because I think that illuminates sort of his impishness. Dean, first of all, it was a huge surprise that he enrolled at VMI to begin with. His friends never anticipated anything like that from a kid like Jonathan Daniels. But his family history was that he had ancestors who fought in the Revolutionary War, a great-grandfather or a great-great-grandfather who had fought in the Civil War. His own father had been injured during military service in World War II. So there was this long history of military service. But the primary reason why Jonathan said he enrolled at VMI was because he needed more self-discipline. As I said earlier, he'd been, he hadn't been the best student. He'd been in trouble a fair amount. But he knew what he wanted to do with his life, or at least the types of things he wanted to do with his life. And he felt he wasn't going to get there unless he developed more self-discipline. And enrolling in military school was, was the way that he decided to do that. And he immediately, he yes. immediately hated it at VMI, but he stuck it out for four years and was valedictorian of his graduating class. And that was an honor that was bestowed upon him. Valedictorians at VMI at the time were were chosen. So he was in the beginning a Yankee that wasn't very well liked to being revered by the time he graduated. And that's when he really started to speak out against religious intolerance. At the time, he was not allowed, no soldier was allowed to have anything that personalized who they were, and that would include a crucifix. And he was very disturbed about that. He wrote about that in the student newspaper, and he was going to find a way around it. And so he wrote to his parish priest, and he sent him a glow-in-the-dark cross, and he put it on the end of a broomstick and uh, stuck it with a piece of gum on the ceiling. And, you know, that was his image that he he looked at every, every night before he went to bed. And that way, when they came and inspected during the day, nobody could see it. I thought that was so clever. <laughs> and if they did, they didn't say anything. Yeah, just so, well, it would just look like, you know, how glow in the dark things look, right? They're just sort of that, right. they're almost white. It might have almost matched. So you wouldn't have even known what it was, maybe. Exactly. So that was, that was pretty cool. 
Today, there is much talk about the NFL players taking a knee during the national anthem. I was surprised by the boldness, never mind on the sideline, a bunch of men who are very well paid for it and maybe only face a backlash very distantly. I mean, hopefully it's not any more than that. But Jonathan would leave out a little bit of the national anthem in a personal protest. And to do so at Virginia Military Institute in the 60s strikes me as very bold. So talk about that. And that started in high school, the land of the free and the home of the brave. He just couldn't bring himself to to pronounce those words because he knew at an early age that not everybody in this country was free. And he always said, you know, I'm not free unless everybody is. Yeah, he was really ahead of his time in terms of a protest that might seem innocuous, but I'm sure gained a lot of attention. You know, somebody standing at attention and not singing, you know, those two lines to the anthem. His mother always said that that was so important to him and she stood by him with that conviction. And I'm sure he had conversations with his friends about that. And I'm sure that he had conversations at VMI. And I can only imagine that that garnered even more respect for him. And he was a great debater. So I would have loved to have had a conversation with him about why. And I'm sure he would have supported the NFL players today who are making their stance also. It's nice that he would debate and try to convince you, but not an arguer. He wasn't looking to argue like so many people are. And I think you, you I don't think after reading this book, you'd question his motives about those kind of things. He clearly wanted to make you think and change you for the better. I think, oh, yeah. I think he had some pretty fierce arguments in his life as well, but always because he was arguing for someone to see a better way, not to prove that he was right, but to convince them that your manners, your stance on this is hurting other people. He's always trying to change things, but from within and from being a mentor, being a positive person, being friendly, and just sticking that honesty in your face throughout Blood Brother. I saw that so many times, and I thought, that's a huge loss. doesn't have to be. Hopefully, we'll all read a book like this and apply it to our lives. I wonder if you both felt like that. What did you feel like if you'd known his story when you were in your 20s, just starting out? What do you think that would have changed? Or how are you changed now by having spent so much time with his inspiration? Well, if I had read Jonathan's story as a young adult, I definitely would have never missed an opportunity to vote. That's definitely the first thing. And I'd also like to think that I would have been inspired to protest nonviolently against an injustice. And I think I would have realized much earlier the connection between protesting and voting and that creating change often requires both of those actions. And, and that would have impacted my viewpoint as a young journalist. Absolutely. You mentioned at the beginning of the show that I'd been born in New Jersey. That's true. I was born in Hackensack Hospital, but we didn't live in Hackensack. And I grew up very close to Newark. And we would often shop there when I was a kid at stores like Bamberger's and Woolworth's. And that abruptly stopped in 1967 with the Newark riots. I think if I'd known Jonathan's story at the time, even though I was only 10 years old, it might have prompted me to ask why those riots occurred and not just accepted that, well, this is a bad place now. We're never going to go to downtown Newark again, which, which is exactly what happened. So I'm not sure that knowing that the origin of those riots was a moment of police brutality against a cab driver who had simply double parked, and then it escalated, into, unfortunately, into violence and looting. But I think I would have at least questioned why that happened and not just accepted the notion that this is a violent place. Don't ever go there again. I have one last question for each of you in turn. Blood Brother is almost a how-to manual, not just for 
how to live in general, how to be a good person, how to be certainly a good Christian. I mean, it's inspiring on so many levels to me, and I hope to lots of readers. I hope to everyone who picks it up. But it's also kind of a how-to manual for young people in particular who want to fight injustice with more than just the sort of passive things that make us feel good about ourselves, the profile picture flag dealies that we have there on Facebook, right? So <laughs> you have to do real things. Voting is one of them. Young people are very loud and outspoken, but the numbers show they just don't show up and vote. So I want to change up the usual question on what you hope 21st century young people get out of Blood Brother. And instead, what do you think we can really do? Not just learn, but what can we really apply to our lives? Because that's the way we keep somebody like Jonathan Daniels alive. Jonathan himself said of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he's certainly one of the greatest men of our times. I pray he doesn't get bumped off. The whole country needs him. And it's heartbreaking when you know what Jonathan's fate is. But the whole country needs all of us. We are the country. So what do you think young people can really do, not just from home, but out in the streets and in the world? Well, first of all, the color of Jonathan's skin did not determine his activism. He saw an injustice, he spoke out, he did something, and he was willing to risk his life for his convictions. But there's so many actions that we can do to change our daily lives without risking our lives. John Lewis says that Jonathan Daniels got into good trouble. And that's the kind of good trouble that we can all get into. Look around on a daily basis and an injustice could be in the lunchroom, you know, in a kid being bullied and sitting by themselves having lunch. It could be as simple as that. It could be walking down the street and seeing someone being hassled maybe because they're homeless or another reason that you could perhaps get involved or say a kind word. So those domino effects can really have an impact on not only your life, but the person's life that you're interacting with. You know, we're in a college town here, and um, we were walking down the street the other day, and a young man was coming toward us. He had a Black Lives t-shirt on and uh, headphones on, and he was kind of staring into space. And you know, walking along, and we just stopped him and said hello. We recognized him from another event we'd been at, and we started talking to him, and he just brightened up and was just so happy, and it was just like just making that little bit of a connection, I think, made a difference in his life that day, and it certainly made a difference in our lives, too. Just that simple gesture of saying hello and meeting someone on a face-to-face -face basis as a human. Much better than just relying on social media, where we tend to, people are either invisible or we're just talking for the edification of everyone else or just to show off. And I, I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else. I'm just saying it's what, what the world has turned us into. We forget to really talk to each other. So Jonathan Daniels certainly had that ability. Again, very inspired by Blood Brother, Rich Wallace and Sandra Neal Wallace. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you for sharing this inspirational story of this unknown civil rights hero, unknown no more, local no more. Jonathan Daniels belongs to all of us as Americans. Best of luck with Blood Brother. Thanks, Dean. It's been great talking to you. It has. Thank you for sharing the story. Again, the book is Blood Brother. Jonathan Daniels and his sacrifice for civil rights. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or navigate through the banner on our homepage every time you go to amazon.com. 
Amazon gives us a small percentage of everything you buy at no additional cost to you. And it's a great way to support us. My thanks to Rich Wallace and Sandra Neal Wallace for joining us and for introducing us to Jonathan Daniels, a local legend we can all claim as Americans. A man only 26 years old who gave his life to help create a more perfect union. I'm better off for having met him through this book and I'm really proud to be able to share it with you. You can visit today's guests online at sandranealwallace.com and richwallacebooks.com. On Twitter, follow them at Sandra N. Wallace and R. Wallace Books. And while you're on Twitter, why not drop us a follow over at History Dean? Or you can like us at facebook.com slash historyauthor. And when you go to our guests' websites, you can find their Facebook pages too. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And until our next trip into the past together, have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.